Community. Educational. Engaging. Opportunity. Inspiring. Successful. Thrive. The Cast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to The Cast, a podcast generated by students here created to help bridge the gap to higher education. I am the communications assistant for, for Cougs Rise and your host, Lauren Dahl. Today's guest on the show is all the way from Columbia and is a WSU alum, Dr. Nancy Carafal Medina. Nancy, welcome so much to the show. So happy to have you here with me today. Lauren, thank you so much for bringing me back home because WSU is my home. Uh, has been since I uh, had the first uh, opportunity to step on ground on the WSU ground. So thank you so much for bringing me back home. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Um, it's been such a pleasure to get to know you a little bit and chat with you. And today's episode is going to be all about building peace and communities. Um, there's a lot that goes along with that, a specialty of yours, of course. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you found your passion for building bridges between communities and academia? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I am a granddaughter of peasants in, in the ambient region of Colombia. I was born in a small mining town, and then um, it is important for me to acknowledge my peasant roots because that is where um, all my understanding from community work um, has been built upon. And obviously, I am a part of a generation of women uh, who have had the opportunity to get into formal education, you know, and that for my own life um, and the work that I do has made a huge difference. So it is uh, thanks to the work of my uh, parents and great-grandparents and grandparents that I am it is possible for me to be here, you know, sharing with you part of my journey in education and, and the work with community. Uh, so that's how it's just an element of who I am. Um, and even more uh, for uh, teenagers in my generation in the 1990s, um, we were not expected, you know, to leave the town and to get into higher education. So as a high schooler, the expectation for me was to just uh, get my high school degree and stay home or get pregnant or get married. And that uh, would be like the predestined, you know, kind of future for me. But uh, thanks to my mom's understanding of the importance that education has, and she encouraged my dad to support me into higher education. And that's how I could apply uh, to the first semester of the university paid by my parents. And uh, from then on, on, I could get a scholarship so that I could um, uh, finalize uh, with success my uh, undergrad program. So I think that, yeah, so I, I, I want to thank also my parents uh, for this opportunity because with one door they opened, I have been able, you know, to have a lot of dreams and to fulfill some of those things. That's great. And um, just such a, um, a different time in your life uh, when I guess you think back to that today and think back to those expectations and whatnot. Um, my question for you about that specifically was um, how did that conversation necessarily go, you know, in your family when you were kind of when you had decided that higher education was something that you really wanted to pursue? Yeah, well, I am the oldest of four. And so then, um, so for my brothers and my sister, I think that it made a difference for me to have a, a, a access to higher education. So back in the day, 
yeah, for um, a working class family and uh, and my mom being a housewife. Uh, so it was probably not given their expectations for to have a daughter who eventually get into higher education and get the opportunity to travel around the world because of that undergrad education. And I've had the opportunity to be one of the Fulbright scholars that is the only one in the region who has obtained a scholarship from the U.S. Embassy. So I think that, um, yeah, like the back in the day, the conversations were hard in terms of, you know, trying to convince my dad, okay, uh, I have the qualifications to do it, so why not give me the opportunity? Yeah. So it was thanks to the persistence of my mom that I could, you know, get that opportunity and then move on and, and have access to, to having education. Yeah, exactly. And I know that in our initial conversation, you spoke so highly of your ability to travel and that you loved those experiences, um, you know, all the times that you did get to travel throughout your time in higher education. So I know that that was something that um, has also really shaped your perspective as well. Yes, I think that having the opportunity to travel to different places has raised my awareness about my own identity construction yeah. um, and also about the value of community work. So everywhere I go, um, I take my roots with myself and then I recall Gloria and Saldua, who is a Chicana Latina family, who has allowed me to understand um, many of the decisions that I've made in the past that I was not fully aware of. But she has allowed us to realize that wherever we go, we take part of our roots with us. We enrich those roots, and then we eventually move to new places so that we can continue to develop different understandings. So for me, having had the opportunity to be uh, one of the most meaningful experiences has been to be in the U.S. precisely to um, carry out my graduate studies in the WSU. Um, I had the opportunity to, to do the PhD in cultural studies and social thought in education. And having been in the land of the Nipu and having had the opportunity to have friends who belong to that community and to other indigenous communities, and having had the opportunity to uh, interact with different international friends from different parts of the world, um, has allowed me to connect to them and their experiences and has allowed me to develop different layers of understanding of what it means to be a U.S. citizen, what it means to enroll in higher education also in the U.S., uh, what it means to be a, a Colombian and uh, Mexica, you know. So then I started to become aware about my own identity because in Colombia I am a very regular person with not particular fashion by the color of my skin. So I'm literally, you know, normal to the eyes of normalcy in the country. But then having been to the U.S. and having been questioned about who I was and where my accent was coming from or uh, what my physical appearance was telling to people or even the clothing that I wore. So that was something also that called uh, the attention of people. So when people started questioning about all these areas of my life that are part of what it means to constitute the pieces of my identity, I just started to become aware of hmm, Like, wow, people are interested in, in my ways of doing and thinking and being and acting. So then that's when I started to explore in particular um, one of the initial questions you were asking about this community work um, drive. Like people were wondering like why why do you want or why do you like to work with communities and since when have you been working with communities and what do you get out of the work with communities? So then traveling and being in different scenarios has allowed me to really get a deeper understanding of my own identity and embed and make a better sense of probably some of the reasons why I do community work. 
because I cannot tell you that I have a definite answer. But then when exploring those questions about community work, I, I went back to my grandparents and my parents. They've been always, uh, you know, supporting communities and being part of uh, different uh, local organizations. Like my dad has been, uh, you know, like uh, the president of different organizations, communal organizations, and leading marches in the country uh, for uh, defending the rights of workers. And then my mom, from a religious perspective, has always been at the service of communities, supporting different people on the streets and doing different kind of work. And then looking back at my grandparents, so they experienced the violence uh, of the 1940s and 50s. Um, so that uh, has been telling me something about why they were fighting for, you know, more equitable spaces within their own communities in the rural areas. So I think that part of that heritage uh, comes with us in our blood, in our life, and, and part of that awareness is starts to evolve when we are part of systems that are also affected to us. Um, so in my case, education, uh, educational settings were not always liberatory, so they were oppressive when I was in primary school and when I was in secondary school as well. So um, it's very interesting that I uh, ended up being a teacher, probably to be one of those teachers that would be uh, working on a different path uh, from oppression that was the one that I experienced and my brothers experienced uh, uh, when entering into those ways. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm just hearing all of your kind of discovery with your identity expression and whatnot. That's something that um, all of us, you know, go through just part of life. Um, But I know that that was a huge part of your studies. And what exactly kind of led you to that aspect as far as this is the problem and this is how I want to be a part of the solution? Yeah, like the different experiences are that's something that I'm only able to make sense uh, now. I think that, um, yeah, all these experiences of oppression that I was experiencing and being discriminated for being from a working class family um, and being yeah, discriminated and judged for coming from a rural area. When I, got, when I got into the university to do my undergrad, I was being discriminated for that reason, right? Like, I was coming from a, a very small town and I probably didn't know how to dress well or probably I didn't know how to speak well or probably my accent also coming from a rural area made a difference in how people viewed me and uh, they uh, used it as a way to judge my intellectual capacity. So I was being undervalued all the time. So then I needed to, uh, or unconsciously, I was through my academic performance was dismantling all those stereotypes that were tied to a rural girl coming to a city and conduct a care uh, undergraduate study. So I was dismantling all, all this rhetoric tied to rural rurality or a rural girl like ignorance, equal ignorance and not being able to do certain things. Like my academic performance, fortunately, um, um, allowed me to open a space for myself and uh, only until my graduate studies, when I did my PhD, I, I was able to get my own voice and be aware that I had a voice and that that voice was trying to tell something. Um, so when I became a teacher, when I got my, my uh, undergrad as a language teacher in Colombia, English and Spanish, and then I got my master's, and when I started being a, a teacher of free service teachers, um, I um, started to do more um, intentional community work with displaced youth and children that were coming to the city where I lived and worked. 
And through that community work, I started to understand many different things. So community work or working with communities allow us to, first of all, keep, ground, keep us grounded. Um, so uh, for me, working with the communities allow me to gain a perspective and understand lived experiences from an angle that informs my decision-making processes in terms of um, how I want to position as an individual, as a teacher, as a researcher, and as an administrator, and also uh, to try to raise awareness uh, with my teacher, the teachers about the importance um, of being a certain kind of educator that may be caring and empathetic and a good listener that can make a difference in an individual's life. So first of all, that's the first component in working with communities. For us to keep us grounded, for us not to be in the story of success, you know, when you become successful and you get a degree and you get a house and a family and money and X, Y, and Z, that is uh, the idea that they say you are success. So then you, you can't forget about communities or you can't forget about the places you're coming from. Like for me, being in contact with communities is very important because I cannot lose perspective of what my real purpose in, law, in life, uh, what the real meaning that my work can have. Um, and not to, to believe the whole story, you know, not to believe that I'm a successful woman and that's the end of my life. Um, that's the, you know, the maximum point in academia that I can get because I haven't got there if I follow the Western vision of success. But um, people that may view me may believe, oh, she's a successful woman because she's got done this, this, and that. Like for me, that's, that's why it is important to be working with communities. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that uh, communal work um, is a very powerful transformational force. When communities work together for a common purpose, uh, I think that we can work towards, you know, dismantling and challenging institutional oppression. So if we are able to come together despite our differences and acknowledge and respect others' humanity and acknowledge and respect others' voices, we can work collectively for transformation. So that's another key component um, in, in working with communities. And, and, and I also want to say that it is challenging, you know, working with other people. Uh, it's challenging, it's demanding, it's a labor of, labor of love, um, and we need to be persistent, and we need to persevere, and we need to be, you know, um, uh, careful, uh, respectful enough, uh, and be humble enough to acknowledge that we don't know it all, and that there's pieces of the story and pieces of the struggle that are built collectively, um, and that are built as part of the understanding that we could uh, develop as a group. Yeah, I really, really liked what you said um, a few minutes back there about how our communities keep us grounded, and I think that's so important for us as first-generation students, um, being able to attribute, you know, back to our community in either that be your community helped you, um, you know, encourage and support, or, you know, you can attribute your success back to your community, you know, give back to your community. I find that to be so important in what we can give back to our communities after our communities has have helped uh, to build us up. So when we talk about community and the correlation between community and academia, um, where is something that you think that just, I guess, across the board, something that we could just improve on wholeheartedly? Um, I know that, you know, your discussion between communities and academia is about how to strengthen 
um, those bonds between those two. So what would you say would be our number one um, thing to focus on as, you know, as a university, what we could give back to our our neighboring community uh, immediately? Yeah, I think that part of the, the academic and research agendas um, have been um, shaped in, in, in the last uh, four years as part of you know, believing that uh, research still, we have like different debates um, in terms of what this is to be an academic and to be a good researcher. And that part of those um, assumptions or beliefs are tied to different, you know, Western ideas of success, you know, uh, when, we, when we equate uh, successful researchers or educators with publications, for example. The publications are the number one indicator that you are a well-known scholar and that you are respected scholar. So little by little, that rhetoric that is that nice in the ground of neoliberal, you know, uh, philosophies that are um, promoting more individualism and competition, they make a loose perspective of what is what is really important or what really or what really matters. Because I can be, you know, this kind of scholar who buys into that rhetoric. And, and, you know, have uh, 10 articles published a year and two books and present the next many number of, of conferences. But when it comes at the end of the day, what matters? What is the contribution that I'm making? So I think that that's a personal and individual question. Like, how do you feel at peace with yourself yeah. and the kind of persona you are building? So whatever the answer might be, if you feel comfortable with it, so that might be, you know, I respect that kind of, answer because nobody is meant to be answering in the same way but my invitation is to ask yourself so what matters at the end of the day for our communities if you're a person who thinks of yourself as a community member um, so for me for example the question at the end of the day in everything I do is what is favorite communities and how my work or my discourse uh, or my administrative position is contributing to the betterment of society is contributing little by little to um, attack, uh, achieve this kind of goal of social justice education because my work and my, my, my uh, closer circle of influence, apart from my family, of course, is the classroom, is the, is the pre-service teachers that I am educating. So um, what I invite my pre-service teachers to think about is that although they are getting a degree to teach foreign languages, uh, English or French or German, which, which are not our native tongues, um, they still have a responsibility in the way uh, how they embrace their students in the classroom, in the way they acknowledge their students' stories and lived experiences in the classroom, in the way uh, the work meaningful, the work contextualized, and the work um, uh, experiential learning connects their students' life. I think that there is a big disconnect when we are teaching at many at different levels of education with an individual's mind, body, and spirit. But mostly education focuses on the cognitive capacity, how much knowledge we can transmit, and then we go back to some of Freire's idea of the banking uh, theory, this concept where we consider that people's minds are receptacles that are empty vessels that are meant to be filled or filled with information provided by an expert who happens to be the teacher. So I think that um, it's very important to us. Or part of the neoliberal um, 
a traditional philosophy that is started in economy is being transferred to universities and how we educate different professionals and in particular pre-service teachers. And then uh, that's when the bond with communities starts to break. So because we don't consider that community work is important, we don't consider we don't consider that communities hold knowledge. We don't consider that communities are part of this construction of knowledge because we have fallen into this other path of believing that knowledge is made by experts who are qualified in a specific settings and that those experts are the ones who have the lab work in, in the kinds of knowledges that we embrace and the kinds of knowledges that we promote. Uh, for us in Latin America, uh, in Colombia uh, as well, which is my, my, my country, um, I, it, it, Apollo Freire is a very important figure uh, because he reminds us that educators of the, of the origin of education lie in the importance of the relationship we build with communities. For Apollo Freire, educators were community builders were uh, meant to be immersed in the communities, creating the spaces or the necessary spaces of dialogue for transformation of the community to take place. So teachers and educators are not just meant to be in a, in, a, in a classroom setting, are not just meant to be experts in science or biology or chemistry or languages, but are also individuals who have this uh, critical consciousness that allows them to read the world to read their immediate context and also contribute um, to create different communities that in my case is creating communities of empathy and communities of care. So I think that as, um, as, as universities uh, and in academia, part of, what, of, the, of the things that we need to really evaluate is the ways for the imaginaries that we have behind the education of certain professionals and to start looking back to communities and understand the values that lie and the knowledges that lie in communities and make you part of this, you know, collective process of knowledge construction. Not to believe that knowledge resides in one specific base of knowing, but we can go to our indigenous communities and we can go, can go back to our rural communities, we can go back to um, our African, you know, descendant communities, um, and our mestizo, mestiza communities and start building knowledge with them. So this is an indication, yeah, to our, you know, peers in academia to, to, to really, like, start rethinking probably how you've been doing things and probably to approach communities and learning with them and probably making other decisions in terms of new directions in which uh, we can go as, as universities, as, as teachers and researchers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I know that. Um, so thank you, first of all, for, for um, sharing your input on that topic and whatnot. I know that um, you kind of believe that building peace is kind of how to, you know, start when we start building communities and, um, you know, working with identity expression and everything like that. So can you can you talk us through a little bit more about your a take on building peace within self, um, building peace within communities, and how that accomplishes these goals that you were just laying out for us earlier? Yes, I think that, um, yeah, I think that one of the ways in which education failed me was in allowing me, in allowing me to make sense of who I am, like giving me the spaces to find value in myself, 
um, to really be able to acknowledge that I have a voice that is valuable to be heard and, and, and I have a voice uh, that can get in conversation with other voices so that we can, you know, build different scenarios. So um, my process of identity construction um, it started to make more sense to me uh, when I started to question my own identity being in the U.S. Like, what does it mean to be an artista? And what is the responsibility that I have um, in going back home? I'm acknowledging that there's other people in the country that are from indigenous origin, from African origin, and that uh, experience racism and discrimination, and that have uh, don't have the same opportunities that I have to have access to education, and that still are being, you know, are experiencing institutional oppression because the regions where they are living are one of the poorest regions uh, in the country. So. I became more aware about uh, being in relation to those other fellow Colombians and, and, and really closer to understanding and acknowledging their histories um, and stories of oppression and discrimination. Um, and then when I started um, my uh, research for my doctoral program, I was feeling this kind of restlessness with myself. And then I was saying, well, I didn't apply, apply to a PhD in, in a different country for me to keep on doing what I you know, what's going to do in, in Colombia where research is this disembodied kind of practice. So then I came across a book that made a difference to me, and it is called Pushing the Spirit, and it is a call by um, Elisa Facio and Irene Lara. It's an edited collection of different Chicana Latina feminists speaking about their own spiritual journeys, speaking about the importance of uh, bringing mind, body, and spirit in everything we do, including research and, and, and teaching, um, where I could uh, listen to their own experiences with healing. And when, when um, I could come across Gloria Santaldua's voice, speaking about, about spiritual activism in, in terms of being uh, able to be aware of um, different kinds of oppressions and to do something about it. So when I read Alcandua's work that that was a spiritual activism to understand oppression and do something about it, it resonated with me. And then I thought, wow, like, this is what I was looking for as a researcher. So then since 2014, I started to come across more books of Chicana Latina feminists and indigenous scholars. And then, then I started to become aware that it was that unity between my body and spirit that I was searching for as an individual and as a researcher and educator. So um, since then, you know, when I came across that first book and then I continued reading all these amazing kind of work, I started to explore and I, and I got intrigued about identity construction processes and this interest and, uh, uh, in, was transferred to the research field. So I ended up um, exploring what was the realities that we were experiencing in Idaho and Washington, what, what is the social reality that I might want to explore further. And that's when I came across a housing instability. And in 2014, I decided, okay, I want to understand housing instability in a rural area in the U.S., different from the imaginary that I had in Colombia, because for me, um, people who don't have a physical space or a house are literally on the street, digging in garbage cans, and, you know, they are under very detrimental living conditions. So that was the imaginary that I had about housing instability in Colombia. So when I came across shelters in the U.S., for me, it was a little, oh, 
that there's a shelter for people who don't have a house. And then I started, like, you know, uh, getting intrigued about understanding that reality. So in 2014, I started this three-year journey in coming to the shelter and then listening to the stories of people, building relationships, and being present for people. And when I started listening to these testimonials or lived experiences, a whole um, other lot layers of understanding about what it means to be started to emerge. So um, then uh, I, I came also, then uh, again, I, I was um, bringing uh, Antaldua and different uh, concepts that she's proposing to understand identity construction, understand, understanding identity construction as a life for me, uh, where we may encounter places of darkness and, and uncertainty, where we don't know who we are, where we may not see where, what the way out of those moments that we experience in, in our life journey. And uh, where we eventually are also uh, stepping outside and stepping away from that darkness with a new meaning of who we are. So that is one of the stages that um, Antaldua describes as Metantala. That stage of uncertainty at any point in our life where we are trying to make sense of a new layer of ourselves that is being shaped and then being able to um, be reborn from that stage of darkness with a new understanding of who we are and we keep on, you know, walking on that path of, of identity construction. So that's part of the journey that I've experienced um, uh, as a researcher, having had the opportunity to question that research was something else than just producing a 300-page uh, document that it entailed a self-transformation and a self-interrogation about who I was and how I understood myself while being in relation to others. And in conducting research, understanding that I don't have the right or the authority to judge other people's decisions or to judge other people's lives or to label other people's um, experiences because a label does not tell the whole story of a person. A label does not comprise the whole complexity of who an individual is. So those are some of the lessons that I have been, um, uh, I have learned as part of my research and academic experience and, and that are, uh, obviously I continue to develop all these understandings of what it means to be and to become. Yeah, I think that all of that was incredible information um, that we can all just kind of soak in in different ways um, to reflect on. I know that um, as you were going through your time in higher education, it was something that you uh, dealt with heavily was your personal struggles with um, imposter syndrome. And can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, and listeners, um, how practicing peace and how that really kind of put you, I guess, on the right track to fighting off those feelings and um, helped you ultimately find a mentor that really, really helped you through your your time in uh, the U.S. for education. Yeah, I think, like, for me, um, it's been a constant battle, you know, because of all the negative experiences I had since I was six years old, you know, five years old, when I got into first grade. And I started to experience different kinds of oppression by my teachers and by my peers and moving on. So then um, I've always had this struggle, you know, with uncertainty and self-doubt. So those two always accompany me, uh, have accompanied me no matter uh, how 
many degrees or how many experiences I might have had, but it is something that is latent there. And, and I attribute it to those, those negative experiences that I had early on in my life that I haven't been able to fully uh, reconcile and, and heal, you know. Um, but then uh, when I was in the U.S., um, you know, uh, the stigma that I brought with myself for this national identity of being a Colombian woman, you know, that didn't fit into the physical stereotype to two of the most well-known females in the U.S. And, and then also bringing this national identity that was tied, you know, to, again, very negative uh, connotations because of all these, you know, drug dealing situation in the country. So I was very, um, I was questioned um, in many different contexts, including the educational context, where um, people were not paying attention to what I had to say in terms of research or the theories that I was developing. But people were more were more intrigued about, oh, uh, you know, the, the, the national identity you're carrying with you and how you respond to that national identity. So I think that um, those layers of those questions and, you know, coming from uh, a stigmatized, a very stigmatized country um, and then coming into a U.S. Um, educational environment where I was exchanging mostly with U.S. citizens, uh, obviously uh, having speaking a language that is not my native language and then feeling that my voice was not being heard uh, or was not being considered in the classroom and let and set me in this, you know, level of or, or, or grounds of, oh, are you really meant to be here? Like, do you really have anything to contribute in terms of research or academia? Like, your ideas are really valuable or not? So then I just started questioning and doubting myself. Um, plus, I also experienced, you know, like academic life is not separated from, from personal experience. And so then, in 2015, I experienced a 10-year relationship breakup, so that was also devastating to me. So then I had one friend um, who had already graduated from WSU who randomly one day on a holiday made me a phone call and said, oh, why is Abraham calling me on, I don't know, a holiday here in the U.S.? What, I don't know. How did he get my number? He was in El Salvador already. And then... Um, so he was asking me, okay, so how are you doing and all that stuff. And I say, I say, well, I am in this position. Like I talk to my professor and then I don't have a clear idea of where I'm going or where my research is going. And then he told me, okay, stop for a minute. And then just start thinking about, first of all, in the first place, why did you decide to apply for the Fulbright scholarship when you were in Colombia? So go back to that motivation that you had and your motivation was, and my motivation was, in a, like getting better tools for me to go back to Colombia and be able to contribute to the community. So then he told me, okay, remember that was your intention and that was your purpose and don't lose it and, and get the security. So then go back, talk to your professor and then you talk with the security, you know what you are, what you, what the idea, research idea that you have in mind. So talk from that position of security. So for me, that phone call plus obviously the trust of my mentor, uh, Pam Berries, and when I say hi to, to my advisory, she may get to listen to this, this, um, this conversation. That to me, uh, Pamela or Pam Berries, Dr. Pamela Berries, was key in, um, since the first day I got to WSU because she said something that was an 18 this day, and it is, I believe in you. 
I believe in each one of you. So she said that to us today, cohort that in our studies in, in the fall 2013. So the fact that she believed in me and um, and in my thinking processes, she was accompanying my thinking and my writing processes, even though she was not certain of where, where we were going. And then, so that's something that I appreciate with her because that, that, that requires, you know, a lot of love and a lot of patience and a lot of, okay, so how can I support you? Uh, I, I imagine that she might have felt at some point like this was it? Or I don't know if I'm missing Nancy or uh, if she's going somewhere or I don't know. So theoretically, if she's developing something important to be sharing in here, but then um, I think that uh, her trust and then having a supporting family um, and then ha having the cultural studies and social talking education crew, all my peers and friends, Carolina, Jeremiah, Manny, Charisse, and all these beautiful people that I cannot name it all, Phil, Angela, all of them, Courtney, uh, Denise, the more names keep coming to my head and I, and I apologize to my friends that I'm not um, able to mention in this, in this moment probably because uh, of the time. Um, uh, all of them uh, have been my family and coming back to Colombia are still part of my family and we are still connected. So I think that these voices um, or the message to, to those who are listening is we will constantly listen to voices that are undervaluing us, that are undervaluing our work, that are telling us that we cannot do it, that we do not deserve the opportunities we are being given or not the opportunities that we are being given, but the opportunities that we have fought for and that we have paved a path for and that our ancestors have already created a path for. So those are the opportunities that, that we have been working with and we deserve them. So we will continuously at any stage of our life uh, be listening to those voices. So my advice is silence those voices. Try to lower the, the volume down to those voices and tune up your inner voice and the voice of the community and the people that trust you and your inner voice that is telling you, oh, you're, you're heading somewhere. Not, we don't know exactly where that place may be, but you have the potential and you have the capacity to make a difference for your own self, your community, and even the country. So we need to believe that. So I think that the imposter syndrome is um, constant battle, battle and then even though, for example, for myself, that we, I don't know, probably 15 years of experience teaching and uh, being in an administrative position, I keep on listening to those voices or encountering those diminishing voices, but the inner strength that comes from community, uh, community work and seeing the power of collective action, so that keeps me not to silence completely those voices, but not to pay attention to them fully and to focus on what really matters. So we have only one opportunity to make a difference and the positions that we occupy, the moment is right here, right now, and we don't have time to waste because our communities don't have time to waste. Um, in particular, in Colombia, we have our social leaders being murdered almost daily, and that is unfortunate for ourselves. And as a teacher, as an educator, it is my responsibility to educate in future or in generations of free service teachers who are going to work with communities and are going to create and are going to educate generations of youngsters that are going to be critical and are going to develop this consciousness so that they may vote for the president that we need for our country that are going to be the true leaders that are going to work for our community.
Yeah, yeah, very, very powerful message and words for all of our students um, listening to that. And thank you for sharing. Um, I can personally attest to just building the community that you do um, throughout your time in higher education or in undergrad is so valuable. And those people and relationships do stay with you forever. As you said, um, you're still in very close contact with your community that you built um, here while you were completing your time at WSU. So just something um, for students there to look forward to that is waiting for you on the other side um, is people who do support you and who you can depend on. And that's just, I personally believe, such a great part of college um, and something that, you know, we all get tremendous uh, value out of. So as we wrap up our episode today, um, what final tips or advice do you want to share for any listeners? I know we've gone over so many topics um, and we've, you know, scratched the surface on so many things that you've shared with us today. Um, but any any final words that you would really like to share to anybody listening? Yeah, I think that uh, I want to thank every one of you who has stayed with us listening. I think that uh, through time and space, we connect in whatever places that we are at. You are not the only ones who have been struggling or facing different, you know, obstacles at different levels from your families. You might be experiencing oppression as well, and uh, you know, families and friends and universities, and then we have churches as well, and then we have different institutions that might tell us and send that messages that are telling us that we are not worth it and that we are not valuable. But the message today is we are valuable and we are here for a purpose. Uh, what our purpose is, is a life journey, and little by little, we will encounter people or situations or experiences that will allow us to really understand what is my purpose in life, and what is my philosophy of life, what's the kind of life that I want to commit to, and then hopefully for those of you who uh, hear the call to stay connected to your communities. So uh, my uh, recognition to you already for what you have already done, for what you are doing and what you will continue to do in working with communities, because I think that's one of the most novel um, agendas that we can encounter, working with communities, because it is not easy. To my peer educators, um, I want to invite you to become those of possibility. Let's become the means for our youth to connect to life to connect to who they are and who they may become. Let's become those individuals who listen, who allow our students to listen to their inner voices and find value in their lives. To our youth, um, I want to uh, advise you to know your history, to know your ancestors, uh, to know your family history, to acknowledge your roots, and to value it and appreciate it. Life is a journey. So let us not fall into the neo-colonial and neoliberal, you know, capitalist trap of individualism and competition. Um, so let's create communities of care, communities of love, solidarity, respect, and resistance. Life uh, is hard by itself. So let us not become, you know, um, one more burden in somebody else's life. And, and I invite you to our youth and everyone listening, be thankful, you know, um, to all those people who have already built a path in us, trusting who you are in every step that you did, be certain that it's making already a difference. To families and communities, thank you for the support, for the love, and for resisting 
um, we are here because of all your strength and courage and, and labor of love. And I hope that we can continue connecting to time and space and that we can enter the dreams of decolonization of our minds, bodies, and spirits, and we may embrace them as part of who we are and about as part of the, the possibility we have to be a nation uh, that are really connecting uh, to time and space. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on the show today. Again, we've scratched the surface on some really big topics, but I really, really appreciate how much you've shared with us and your experience and your insights and everything. Um, So thank you so much for being a part of the show today. As far as continuing the conversation, um, I have several contact information for you here. So to any listeners who do want to continue this conversation, ask questions, or just stay in touch, I will provide all of those links uh, for contact information for you, Nancy, in the description box below um, for everybody, for anyone who is looking for them. But again, thank you again so much, Nancy, for being here. And um, I hope to someday uh, dive deeper into some of the things that we talked about today. Again, I know that we um, just kind of began the conversations on some pretty complex topics today, but thank you for your sharing. Well, thank you, Lauren, and yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sending you a uh, very everybody a hug from down here to up there, and thank you for offering this space, Lauren, for all the investment of love that you're making to this, you know, podcast, because that's our little way um, to tell the community that we are here, and that technology can serve us, you know, to be present and to support one another. Amazing. Um, So have an amazing rest of your day. Everyone have an amazing rest of your day. Again, all of the contact information, um, if you are looking to get in touch, will be in the description below. And remember to follow us at Rise on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to keep up with all of our podcast episodes and make sure not to miss new guests or recording uh, release dates. Uh, Nancy, again, thank you. Everyone else, have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.